found in the Gospel of Mark. We're back in Mark for the next few weeks before we get to the season of Advent and Christmas. Mark 3, 31 through 35, this is the word of the Lord. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. How important is family for you? Would you say that family is the most important thing in your life? We often hear that the breakdown of the family has been the demise of our society. Our society is falling because families are falling. Our society is falling because fathers are absent. But is the breakdown of the family the cause of a societal decline, or is it the result of? In 2017, a survey was conducted by the website Statistica.com, and that survey asked over a thousand Americans the question, how important is family in your life? 60% of those, sur those surveyed answered, family is the most important aspect of my life. The answer was expected, wasn't it? It feels right to answer that family is the most important aspect of our lives, but should it be? Undoubtedly, family is very important, but should it top the list of those things that are most important for us? Friends, as important as family is, Jesus is more important. And a right relationship with Jesus will right our own perspectives and relationships with our family. In our passage for today, Jesus challenges this narrative that family is ultimate. But Jesus' challenge is not for us to love family less, but instead for us to love family rightly. The more we love Jesus, the more we'll love our families. How should we love family rightly? By holding Christ as supreme in our hearts. Jesus calls us to love him above all other things so we can love all other things more. So we're getting back to the Gospel of Mark. We've been away from it for a month. So let's take a few minutes here to kind of review where we've been. The Gospel of Mark opens with John the Baptist as the forerunner of the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. John encounters, Jesus encounters John, his cousin, in the Jordan River, where he is, Christ, that, that is, where he is baptized. And Jesus' baptism is the inauguration of his three years of ministry on earth 
earth. At the heart of Jesus' ministry, there is a message. At the heart of Jesus' ministry, there is his preaching. And we find the summary of his preaching in Mark 1, 15, where Jesus says, Repent and believe the gospel. But instead of focusing on the content of Jesus' preaching, Mark focuses on Jesus' actions. The Greek word, euthos, is repeated 47 times in this book, giving us an idea of a fast-paced Christ. This is an event-oriented book. Jesus has a home. His home is in Capernaum. Jesus' ministry begins in the city of Capernaum, and this is where we've been for pretty much the entire book so far. A city by the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum was an important city. It was a crossroads in the northern territory of Israel. It was a wealthy city, and it was godless. Far from Jerusalem, the spiritual center of Israel, Capernaum was a city filled with dead religion. In Capernaum, Jesus lived in Peter's and Andrew's house. Jesus had friends. Their friend, his friends, the religious outsiders. Jesus did not associate with the religious class much at all. On the contrary, they were his enemies. His 12 disciples were men of trade, many of them fishermen who were just part of the regular commerce of the city. But not only were his associates not in the high religious echelon, but many of them were actually ostracized and rejected by the religious insiders. Jesus associates with Levi, you may know him as Matthew, the tax collector. He delivers the demon from the demon-possessed. He heals the leper. Jesus associates with those who would be rejected by the, the, the religious crowd. Jesus is known in the Gospel of Mark as the friend of sinners. And that's good news for us. Jesus had religious opposition. The scribes and the Pharisees, these associations with the religious outsiders, drove the religious community crazy. Jesus didn't fit their preconceptions of a Messiah. They didn't have a category for someone who could be holy and associate with the unholy at the same time. For them, the kingdom of God would come through religious discipline. For the scribes and Pharisees, the, the kingdom of God would come through obedience. So they created laws around the law, which completely obscure the purpose of God's law to begin with. But Jesus taught that in his law, we love. And that is the essence of Jesus' teaching, love that leads to repentance. 
Not only did Jesus have religious opposition, he also had spiritual opposition, Satan and his demons. Primarily, Jesus' opposition took place in the spiritual realm. After his baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit to the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil. The devil had succeeded leading every man to fall into sin from the time Adam and Eve fell in the garden. But Jesus resisted Satan. And for the first time in all of history, Satan meets a man who does not fall for his lies and his deception. Jesus is the strong man who bound Satan and plundered his goods. Not only did Jesus face off with Satan, he often faced off with his minions. Every time a demon saw Jesus, they screamed. Only the demons recognized Jesus for who he was, the Son of God. Yet Jesus never allowed demons to speak or reveal his true identity. No man would recognize Jesus' true identity in the Gospel of Mark until after Jesus is crucified Not one of his disciples, but a Roman centurion sees Jesus breathe his last breath and says, Truly this is the Son of God. The opposition of Jesus is a major theme in the Gospel of Mark. But today, we see Jesus facing a different kind of opposition. This opposition hits closer to home, literally. Now his family opposes him. So as as we dive into our text today, let us consider two things. Jesus' natural family and Jesus' spiritual family. So first, let's consider Jesus' natural family. In, In verse 31... We meet Jesus' natural family, his mother and his brothers. We had heard of them in verse 21, but now they're back. Because Mark does not have a birth narrative, or actually Mark doesn't even have any account of Jesus' life before the baptism, this is the first time we meet Jesus' family. And the way Mark paints Jesus' natural family is not positive. Notice here the irony. Usually, the house is a place for the family and the crowds stand outside. But here, Jesus' family is standing outside the house while the crowd is inside with Jesus. Notice also that Jesus' family doesn't even have the ability to enter the house. The crowd kept them out. They have to send someone in to call for Jesus. They have no access to Jesus and no motivation to reach him themselves. In chapter 2, we met four friends filled with faith who were willing to remove the roof of Peter's house in order to lower their paralytic friend So that Jesus could heal 
him. But Jesus' family stands outside and sends someone in for Jesus. Notice also that Jesus' family is seeking Jesus. Now, at face value, this might seem insignificant or even positive. But the word to seek, zeteo, is used ten times in the Gospel of Mark, all ten in relationship to Jesus. Nine out of ten times the word is used negatively, including in our passage for today. With the exception of the women seeking for Jesus in the empty tomb in Mark 16, verse 6, for Mark to, G to seek Jesus is the wrong thing to do, comes a hindrance to follow Christ. In a similar account, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells those around him, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, you hear the weight of this word, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We see this example in the Bible, don't we? Abraham longs for a son, and when God gives him a son, what does he tell him to do? Sacrifice your son. God says, show me that you love me more than your son. Now, this is a descriptive passage, not prescriptive. God is not going to ask any of us to do that. But in history, he has asked Abraham to do that. And Abraham shows his devotion to God by saying, I love you more than my desired long-desired son we heard this this morning right ruth has nothing she loses everything and she has the opportunity to go back to her homeland in moab her sister-in-law does that but ruth clings to naomi why she says she tells us because she wanted naomi's god to be her god she forsakes her homeland, she forsakes her people, she forsakes herself and says, it is better for me to be with you because your God must be my God. These are examples in the Bible of those who understand the difference between the natural family and the supernatural family, the biological family and the family of faith. It, it is an evidence in the Bible that God places himself above family he is greater jesus knew the difference between that which is eternal and that which is temporal and as much as our natural families may be precious to us and they should be when our devotion to them rivals our devotion to christ our love of family becomes idolatrous and what is idolatry idolatry is anything that takes the place of christ in our hearts in the book Pilgrim's Progress, after Christian, the main, character, the main character of the book learns from evangelists, another character, the, the direction of the eternal city. Here's what happens. At this, quote, Christian begins to run, and he is near the house, and as he is near the house, he is seen by his wife and children who run after him, calling out to him to return and not leave them destitute, Christian does not look back, puts his fingers in his ears to keep them, to keep from hearing 
the pitiful wails of his family and runs on crying, life, life, eternal life. Friends, we're running a race where the goal is the eternal city. And Satan is trying to distract us. But Satan's greatest tool is not convincing us to pursue that which is unimportant and even ungodly. Satan will convince us rather to pursue secondary things as ultimates. That's his great tool. When our family becomes our gospel, we lose Christ. But not only that, when our family becomes our gospel, we lose our ability to point them to Christ. So we are of no help to them spiritually. This is paradoxical. I understand. The more we understand the supremacy of Christ and the secondary role of family, or the secondary role that family ought to play in our hearts, the more we can help our family. The more Christ is supreme and the more family is secondary, the more useful, beneficial we are to our family. The more we love Christ, the more we'll love our families. So how do we do this? How do we make sure that we're keeping that which is primary, primary, the gospel, and secondary, secondary, family? First, we check our hearts. We check our hearts for idols. For idolatry. Is the love of Christ sufficient for us? Do we find enough satisfaction in Christ that we can say with the Apostle Paul, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Do you hear that? Paul is saying that in order for us to gain Christ, we need to lose everything else. Bad things good things nothing can rival christ can we put family in that category of all things that we must count as rubbish but second we check where our hearts are leading us we check our priorities if we love christ does that reflect in the way we lead our lives friends what your spouses need most, what your children need most, what your parents need most, is to see you completely devoted to Christ. They need to see that they need you to need Christ more than you need them. Because if you put the expectations of Christ on them, they will never need it. They need to see you in the Word. They need to see you in prayer. They need to see you in church. They need to see you fighting sin. They need to see you running after Christ because your life depends on it. Do you love your family? Love Christ as supreme. You must talk about Christ. Talking about Christ is important. Yes. But nothing is more inspiring and compelling than to see someone living a life that is completely devoted to Christ. So you consider Jesus' natural family. That's considered now Jesus' 
supernatural standard. Jesus turns to the crowd and asks this question, who are my mother and my brothers? And after gazing at the crowd, he makes an astonishing statement, you, you, this crowd right here, this messy crowd that sometimes keeps me from ministry, this messy crowd that sometimes gets on my way, you are my mother and my brothers. Jesus here redefines the family to be those who walk with him. My mother and my brothers, here are my mother and my brothers. But not only that, Jesus also redefines the family to be those who do the will of God. Not mere proximity, but a proximity that transforms. These are Jesus' brothers and sisters and mother. I mean, we know who Jesus' family is here, don't we? His mother, Mary, his brother, James, and Jude, who would become pivotal figures in church history, were the ones seeking him. Perhaps other brothers here that are not mentioned elsewhere. So great is their reputation in Christian tradition that some have even come to erroneously venerate them as saints. And yet, at this point, they stand outside. Why? Because they did not believe Jesus. They doubted Jesus. They thought of him as a mad man. Mark 3.21, Jesus' family goes as far to say that Jesus is out of his mind. John 7, 5, Jesus' brothers try to manipulate Jesus to go to Jerusalem so that Jesus could advance their agenda. And John tells us that not even his brothers believed him. They were faithless. They were apart from Christ. Now, although Jesus highlights here the distinction between his biological family and his family of faith, this does not mean that Jesus did not care about his biological family. As he is on the cross, he cares for his mother and appoints the apostle John to care for her as though she was his own mother and as though he was her own son. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to many people. But he appears in a special way, we hear this in 1 Corinthians 15, to a few people. One of them is his brother, James, who goes on to become a great leader in the early church, perhaps even a pastor in the church in Jerusalem. Jesus cared about the well-being of his family, and so should we. Don't get me wrong. Honoring our parents is a binding commandment today for us. A husband who loves his wife and a wife who submits to her husband is a wonderful picture of the gospel and God's faithfulness to his church. It is necessary that we raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But at the moment we make parents, spouses, children, 
or anyone else ultimate. When we make family our gospel, we turn that which is temporal into something eternal. Friends, we, we may or we may not spend eternity with our biological families. But we who are in Christ will spend eternity with Christ and with our spiritual family. That is why our relationship to those who share Christ with us is so important. Friends, there's no greater family we could belong to than God's eternal family, which is constituted of everyone who has ever believed God from the beginning all the way until Jesus returned. Now listen to some of the benefits of God's eternal family, okay? If you are in Christ, Christ is your brother. Hebrews 2.11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, right, that Jesus sanctifies and we who are sanctified, all have one source. Jesus is a human like us. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Do you realize that? The creator of the universe, if you believe in him, he's your brother. Not only that, if you're in Christ, God is your father. John 1, 12 through 13, not everybody is, right? Not everybody is born a child of God. Everybody is a creature made by God. But listen to this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, right? The, the relationship between Jesus and his, and, and his biological family was one of blood. But these are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. But not only that, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Romans 8, 14 and 15 for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. The Spirit applies adoption to us as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And friends, this is what makes this family a supernatural family. It takes the love of the triune God of the universe to turn sons and daughters of rebellion into sons and daughters of redemption. That is supernatural. It takes the gospel to create the family of God. Often we greet each other at church with the word brother or with the word sister. We may not think too much about it, but there's great depth in these words. Jesus does not use them flippantly. It costs him much to be able to truly call his followers, his brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, we might, he might taste death for everyone. That's the suffering of Christ. 
What is the purpose of that suffering? For it was fitting that he from whom all, by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Wow. The suffering of Christ is in order to bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was through a perfect suffering that our salvation was made perfect. In other words, we once were separated from God without hope in this world. We had no family identity that could assure us eternal hope. We were characterized by our sins, and the sins and these sins alienated us from God. The Bible rightly describes us in our natural state, not as sons of God, but as enemies of God, not as sons of God, but sons of perdition. But Jesus made himself. He humbled himself in order to die. Why? Because he loved those who were his. John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is setting his eyes on the cross. Christ loved those who were to become his brothers and sisters all the way to the cross. On the cross, he demonstrated his love by taking on the sin of his brothers and his sisters, enduring the righteous wrath of the Father until every sin was fully paid for. Friends, our adoption was costly. Let us not think lightly of the fact that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. Let us not think lightly of the fact that God is not just our creator, but he's our Father it cost the life of his son. And friends, the greater gift our brother Jesus Christ has given us is his spirit. Jesus didn't remain dead. He rose by the power of the spirit of God. And this very spirit has given to us the spirit of adoption. Therefore, we're able to live spirit and spirit empowered relationships. This is what makes us a supernatural family. This is what makes the church an embassy of heaven on earth. It is the spirit that indwells all of us. It has taken the gospel. It has taken the spirit for us to be formed. So if the spirit lives in us, our love for one another must have no limits, no boundaries. Friends, if you are in Christ, hear this good news. We, the church, are your brothers and sisters. You, you, may, you may feel lonely. You may struggle because your family might have rejected you. Or your family might not be here anymore. You may feel lonely because of your current life situation but friends the church is a place where singles and widows can find family this is a place where the lonely can find company the needy finds help and the strong shares the burdens of the weak all of this because christ died all of this because christ has given us of his spirit this is a place where our differences don't define us our differences don't divide us. 
here the common factor that unites us all is the fact that we belong to Christ. Friend, you have more in common with your fellow believer in this room than you have with your blood relatives on this earth. You have more in common with the believer in the other side of the world that worships Christ today than you have with the unbelieving brother or sister or relative that lives next door to you. We have more in common with our fellow believers than with anyone else on earth. So love one another deeply. Love the church. Promote its unit, unity. Promote its ministry. Love the people of God. Let us love one another, not because of our perfection, but because of Christ. Church history tells us the story of two women who had nothing in common with one another except their faith in Christ. Their names, Perpetua and Felicity. Perpetua and Felicity lived in the city of Carthage, North Africa, in modern-day Tunisia. They both lived in the late 2nd century into the early 3rd century. Perpetua came from a rich aristocratic family and Felicity was a slave in Perpetua's household. They both heard the gospel and came to faith in Christ. One day as these two women worshipped God along with other believers, they were seized by the Roman guard and sentenced to death for their faith. They were young, probably in their early 20s. At the time of their arrest, Perpetua had just given birth to a newborn son, and Felicity was eight months pregnant. Perpetua, whose father was not a believer, she wrote down this interaction with her father in her diary as he sought to appeal to her and as he sought to convince her to show allegiance to her biological family in order to convince her to present sacrifices to the Roman emperor so her life could be spared. Here's what Perpetua's father said to her. Have pity on my great head have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father. If I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother, your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you're gone, give up your pride. Her response to her father, I cannot be called anything 
other than what I am, a Christian. Felicity went on to give birth to her son who lived. And Perpetua would go on to die in the hands of Roman gladiators. At her side, not her father, nor her mother, nor her brothers, nor her uncle, not even her son. At her side, her former slave, but now a sister in Christ, Felicity. They died martyrs. They died together. They died for Christ. They died in Christ. Friends, today we're reminded of our familial ties to one another by this table that is set before us. Not that we have died for Christ, but that Christ has died for us. And in doing so, He has made us one. We, who take of the body and of the blood of Christ, remember that in Him we are one. Today we celebrate the fact that our brother Christ gave himself up for us so that we could together live for him. In this moment, I want to invite the deacons to come forward as we prepare to observe the Lord's Supper. This is the memorial table that is set before us. This is the table that reminds us of our great need for Christ. Gentlemen, once you arrive, you may sit down. This is a table that reminds us of our need for Christ. This is a table that reminds us of the fact that Jesus' body was crushed for us. This is a table that reminds that his blood was spilled. And because of the spilling of his blood, we now partake in a covenant where Christ is the head. Friends, this is a family meal that we're about to observe. When Paul instructs the church in Corinth to observe this, he, ob he instructs them to observe this together. As you come together, he says that over and over again. As we pass the elements, I'm going to ask that you wait for the appointed time so that we can take these elements together. This is a table that reminds us that we are believers. And as believers, we're constantly repenting from our sins. So this is an opportunity for us to right now examine our hearts and see if there is any way that we're holding on to sin. It's an opportunity for us to repent from our sins. If you're not a believer and you're here with us today, we are so glad you're here. But the Bible does say that if you were to take these elements, you would drink condemnation on yourself. So we want to warn you not to take these elements for your good. Let them pass. And now listen, if you let these elements pass, we will have so much respect for you. We'll, we'll, we'll look at you with respect, knowing that you're honoring this celebration. But here's what we would love. We would love to talk to you about coming to this table. We would love to talk to you about what it means to celebrate the death of Christ in our behalf. 
we would love to walk you through what it means to be baptized so that you can publicly profess your faith in Christ and this table can become a reminder of this public, public profession of faith. If you're not a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, let these elements pass. But let this be the last time these elements pass. Come to Christ in faith. At this moment, I'm going to ask that the deacons please stand. We'll pass the elements. Gentlemen, you may pass the elements. <laughs> 